This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. On today's episode, we're looking at the changing face of the dairy industry. With a rich heritage of dairy farming and production in Scotland, challenges over the last 20 years have meant that dairies have had to diversify or die. Today we talk to three such businesses who have diversified, whose roots in traditional farming are still informing their work today. First up, I chat to Bryce Cunningham of Mosquil Farm. Bryce has a really interesting story about how he went from working as a mechanic for Mercedes to looking after his family's herd of cattle. They say necessity is the mother of invention. In the case of Mosquil Farm, this would appear to be the case. Having experienced a number of devastating blows, the business was forced to go back to basics and from there they have grown into a sustainable, modern operation. We ended up in this really surreal situation where myself and the Sustainability Director of Oatly were on Reddit doing an Ask Me Anything debate about why climate labelling is not done in dairy but it is done in oat drinks. I also spoke to David and Wilma Finlay of The Ethical Dairy, who may be known more widely for their business, Cremo Galloway, which they have just sold. Having spent many years making ice cream, in recent times they decided the businesses needed to be more self-sufficient and to rely less on ingredients and resources which they had to buy in from all over the world. As you'll hear in their story, a change of hearts and minds was needed to embrace change, but when they did, a whole new world has opened up and one which seems to be reaping rewards for them. It's incredible how the regenerative type of agriculture has taught us that a lot of the things that we were having to do were unnecessary if we didn't push our cows so hard, if we gave them time and fed them more natural diet. Finally, I spoke to Robert Graham of Graham's The Family Dairy, one of the best known dairy brands in Scotland and beyond. Graham's have found great recent success in their production of dairy-based protein products alongside the traditional milk production they were famous for. We see people turning back to butter now, fats are less demonised, fat is seen as positive now. By the end of this podcast, I think you'll agree there's lots of innovation going on in the dairy industry in Scotland. No doubt one thing is certain though, change will continue, but these businesses seem well equipped to embrace it whilst continuing to thrive. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I'm joined by farmer Bryce Cunningham from Mosquil Farm. Hi Bryce, how are you? Hi, not bad, thank you, not bad. Thanks for having me on. That's all right. I've been saying Happy New Year to everyone, but I don't know if we're a bit late, but Happy New Year. <laughs> Thanks very much, Happy New Year too. There's, there's always uh, some kind of cut off, isn't it? No one really knows when that is. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. Someone should just set a date. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking on this episode about sort of changing landscape of dairy in Scotland. But for anyone that doesn't know your company, could you just tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are Miss Farm. We're a dairy farm in the southwest of Scotland, about 25 miles from Glasgow. We have our own cows. We have 45 of our own cows, which are fully organic. And we operate a cow with calf dairy on site as well. And we also work with uh, five other organic dairies in southwest Scotland through the Organic Herd Cooperative to supply milk to us so that we can brew it and then we deliver it across Scotland. And we also have a coffee shop as well. So it's a coffee shop and specialty bakery in Stewarton, about 10 miles from the farm. So I've got a few th- a few different things to keep me busy and keep me awake at night. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> and keep you up early in the morning probably as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, day, the day always likes to start early. So <laughs> Are you in quite a historic location? Am I right in saying you've got some kind of connection to... Robert Burns, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yep. So we live in Mosgiel Farms. So we live in West Mosgiel. East Mosgiel is a farm next door that, that Robert Burns himself lived uh, back in 1784 to 1786. And uh, we today we farm the land of both farms. So our cows graze the very grasses and, and lands that, that Robert Burns and his family tended a couple of hundred years ago. So it's a pretty special place to be, especially this time of year, of course, with a couple of weeks to Burns night. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how did you sort of come up with the idea of, like, you know, organic stuff's been going around for a while, obviously, but the cow to calf's relatively sort of, I would have thought, innovative and quite new at this point. So how, how did you get to the point you're at now when it comes to your business? Ten years ago was a, a conventional dairy farm. So my father was a farmer at that time and he was milking 150 cows and just doing the day-to-day, so cows have been fed, producing milk, we were selling it to the market through a, a local milk buyer, and ultimately it was becoming cheese for sale into supermarkets across the UK. Now, on a global scale, that was the time that the milk price began its sort of most recent collapse and the, the volatility that, that is the dairy industry, and it was the hardest collapse in dairy prices in, in living memory. And so at the time, internationally, Russia had stopped buying European milk, which had crashed prices, as had China, and there was also a glut of milk coming from New Zealand, so the international commodity price had crashed the UK local prices as well. Unluckily for us, we were on the low, lowest priced milk contract in the UK at the time. Our milk price went from 27 pence down to nine. And the same month that happened, my father had died from terminal cancer. My grandfather, who was also a partner in the business, had died the year before. And I had, at that point, just taken the business on after a 10-year career in Mercedes-Benz fixing cars. So I had no idea what I was doing. And ultimately, because of the, the sort of the triple problem that happened to us, the bank decided we were no longer a viable business and we to, to sell off our assets to try and pay the bank off and left us with quite a lot of debt. At the end of that, we were left with 28 cows and we, because we didn't own the farm, the bank couldn't take it away, we were tenants, so we were able to keep the farm and I sort of decided that I wanted to keep something going, so we kept those 28 cows. We continued to milk them, but we couldn't find a milk buyer because we didn't have enough milk to supply them. So we decided that we were going to turn back the clock and start selling our milk directly to our local community. Through that sort of transitioning process, we couldn't afford to, to feed our cows fancy cereals and fancy concentrates. We couldn't afford fertiliser and we couldn't do lots of different things. So we sort of fell into sort of accidentally becoming organic, if you like. We signed up in 2016 to become an organic farm sort of officially. And as, as we sort of went on that journey, uh, because we couldn't afford to buy these fancy tractors and fancy bits of equipment and fancy cereals and things, we ended up farming the way that my grandfather would have farmed in nine, back in sort of nineteen forty eight when he came here originally, and over the years we sort of realised that you know this way can work. We have this direct relationship with our supporters, with our customers. We're producing milk in a very natural way because we weren't interfering with the cow's diet in such a way that the milk quality was very high. 
and we ultimately started selling milk into specialty coffee shops in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And because of the way we were pasteurising, which is effectively brewing the milk, and uh, because of the diet our cows had, and because our cows were also Ayrshire dairy cows as opposed to, to Holsteins, which, which uh, the Ayrshire produced a slightly higher quality of milk, we sort of started producing this very high quality milk for specialty coffee shops and other places around Scotland. As we continued down the road of the business, we kept that sort of idea that we wanted to farm traditionally in a modern way and also listen to our customers as to how they would like to see us farming. And one of the things that came out of that was organic farming and the cow with calf system, where we keep the calves with the cows till weaning. And then we sort of do different things around the farm to sort of try and make that system work. So it's uh, certainly been a, a voyage of discovery for the past sort of eight to ten years that uh, that we've been on. So. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds amazing. Like with all that sort of adversity, you could have just walked away because, you know, you had another career. So you've obviously had a bit of a passion for it. Do you think that comes from it being a family business? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's a, an, an part to do with that. Yeah, I actually grew up in the farm and when I hit 16 years old, I couldn't wait to get away from it, to be honest. I hated everything to do with farming. I was miles away from my friends. I wanted to do something in the motor industry, which the farm wouldn't allow me to do. I moved away from the farm by the time I was 20 just to try and get away into this different industry. It was sort of near the end of my career in the motor industry that I started to think, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite missing the farm. Is this whole life I haven't sort of looked at and ventured on and sort of seen my father's health failing? I thought, you know, this might be the opportunity I have to, to go and do something. When the sort of the cycle happened in 2014 when we nearly lost the farm, I just had this passion to go, well, actually, you know, this was almost taken away from us. We've got absolutely nothing to lose. Might as well give it a go. And at that time, that was when animal rights movements started to become very loud. We're starting to pay a lot of attention to how farming is affecting the environment. And also, uh, we're starting to hear about how plastic pollution was affecting the oceans more and more in, in social media and on the mainstream media as well. I felt quite strongly about that. That was kind of one of the reasons we started to do a lot of the, the, the things we implemented over the years. And you sort of mentioned the cows a little bit. Could you tell us a bit more about the breed and the herd and, and how that they, they produce the milk that they produce? So our cows on the farm, we call them the Mosquil girls, and so they've all got their own names, and all of their breeding goes back to the original cows that my father and my grandfather had over the 50, 60 years that they had the farm. Today, they're looked after by our herd happiness manager, Elizabeth and I, so Elizabeth's in there day-to-day doing the milking, uh, looking after the cows and calves. She's the one that names them all, so we've got lots of different lots of different names in the herd now as well. So for example, last year, all the female calves were given Ukrainian names, just to sort of advertise and support the Ukrainian cause. The cows themselves, they're Ayrshire cows, so they're actually the same types of cows that Robert Burns would have had here at Miskeel a couple of hundred years ago. Ayrshire cows are quite famous for that. They don't produce the the highest fat and highest protein of milk, but they don't produce a very low fat and protein milk, so they're a milk that's very, very balanced. A lot of traditional cheesemakers like the milk from Ayrshire cows because it's a very sweet taste, a very balanced protein that makes really, really nice cheese. It's not too oily or sort of uh, too dry, if you like, so um, the Ayrshire cows are quite famous around the world for that. You'll find the Ayrshire cows all the way from from here in Ayrshire, where they they originated, all the way to New Zealand, South South America, South Africa, North America as well, so they're a breed that's went around the world. We feed the cows grass that grows around the farm, we also have planted research herbal lays as well. So that's where we're planting lots of different species of grass, clovers and different herbs that we feed the cows as well to try and reduce the cereal intake of the cows. So we feed the absolute minimum of cereal to the cows themselves and only if they're being milked. So it keeps the milk quality very high. And we're also feeding things like seaweed and rock salt to the cows as well. So the seaweed to keep their, their iodine and nutrition intake up. 
and the salt licks because cows love salt because it just it keeps the sort of saliva going and, and they keep keeping everything tasty. So it's, it's not just a case of garnish on top of the grass. They, they do like a bit, a bit of a salt lick. So yeah, so that, that all culminates in, in a milk that we feel is, is very, very special. As I say, we, when we take that milk, we, we brew the milk. We don't pasteurise it in the normal way. And the brewing process is something that we've created over the past three or four years, which is similar to pasteurisation, but we heat it up and cool it down in different ways to, to get the unique flavours that we have. And we work with the, the, the five other farms as well through the cooperative. The milk they supply is fully organic. And again, it's also made in a very similar way with the, the minimum of concentrates that they can, can allow, um, which is quite a standard thing in organic production. And the cooperative itself don't use antibiotics in, the, in any animals producing milk. And uh, they've got lots of different things as well as part of that co-op, which allows sustainability and, and sort of productivity to, to thrive within that. And I'm assuming with the co-op, it's just sort of strength in numbers. If you all come together to produce this product, you can also sort of, does it help set the price or does it sort of protect you from what happened before? I mean, I know you're doing like much smaller, you're not going into the supermarkets, but are you protected from any sort of fluctuations in the market and the way that you're doing things now? Personally, I wouldn't say we're, we're protected as such from the, from the fluctuations in that way. What we do is we market very separately and very differently. So the price that we buy and sell milk for is not linked to the commodity market. We do everything we can to, to remove ourselves from that sort of uh, fluctuation within that. Co-op itself does set the price, so we've got a very unique relationship with the co-op. We're part of the co-op, however, we buy milk from the co-op. And that means that the cooperative sets the price based on what the farmers need to farm in this, this sort of uh, sustainable way that we ask for. They were able to sell that to, to supporters with a a completely transparent way of, of being able to sort of show the milk price from the farm all the way to the shop shelf. I should tell you just now before we get carried away in something else that it's your milk in this coffee. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so I get, yeah, I get um, delivery from uh, Locavore as part of my veg box. So oh, thank you very much. That's, uh, <laughs> well, thank you. It's great. So just on that, have you found the consumer demand and what they're looking for to be, you know, you said people are more interested in knowing where their food comes from and like the animal rights movement. Were you quite surprised by the demand and are you finding that you know it's it's carrying on like you know people are they can go off and they could have like oat milk or almond milk in their coffee but maybe there's an element of people me included that want to do something good for the environment but I don't necessarily want to have almond milk are you finding that there is obviously consumer demand there but there's also a knowledge around sort of sustainability and animal rights yes I, I, do, I do agree um, there's definitely a, a massive knowledge now of how food production whether that's animal-based proteins plant-based proteins or anything new that's coming along the lines is affecting our environment and that's something that I feel very passionately about and it's the reason that we've sort of done what we do now we're finding that consumers are that they're picking up not everyone but a lot of people are picking up products based on what they believe is the right thing for them to do. So, so as you mentioned there, a lot of people believe that, that picking up a plant-based product is the thing for them. A lot of people believe that picking up an organic product is the thing for them. And that's the way that, that, that we're sort of trying to meet the market and everyone's sort of trying to work out what we're doing. My aspirations as a business is to, to sort of go out there and show that you know we have this dairy product, which is organic, which is delivered in electric vehicles and, and delivered without any plastic waste. And that can be as sustainable, if not more sustainable, than the plant-based equivalent. And that's the whole sort of vision that we have is, is to sort of show this and see if it can be done and in some ways we're, we're finding that we can be more environmentally sustainable in that sense and in some ways we're struggling with it so then it's what we've got to do as a business is look at the bits we're struggling with find ways to alter or change that and if we can't change that we have to go over the top and something else to sort of make sure that that, that bit is then able to be more sustainable than what it, what it would be otherwise so we've actually we're in quite an exciting position just now oh again it's, it never came out of adversity but it came out of a, a bit of a kind of unique case situation so a few months ago 
Oatly, the, the Oat brand, put this advert up saying they wanted a dairy executive to debate with them in a, a discussion about uh, putting carbon footprinting numbers onto packaging. And they wanted someone from the dairy industry to, to go ahead and do that. And they put this big advert out. So I decided that I was going to go and be, try and be that person. And it turns out I was the only person within the dairy industry in Europe to actually send the email in and apply for it. So we ended up in this really surreal situation where myself and the sustainability director of Oatly were on Reddit doing an Ask Me Anything debate about why climate labelling is not done in dairy, but it is done in oat drinks. And what came out of the come out of that was a really, really interesting discussion with, uh, with quite, quite a number of people across Reddit, so much so that Oatly have actually agreed to help us find out our true carbon footprinting numbers, which is something we've kind of struggled with because of there's a lot of different questions asked about the, the true value behind carbon footprinting, how it's calculated, not all the different ways it can be calculated. And so that, this is where you're seeing some industries saying where they're perhaps net zero, but it's actually greenwashing because they're most likely certain parts of their, of their industry or certain parts of their product to, to report on. So you want to do an entire carbon footprinting number from Moscow, we'll find out what that number is, we'll then work out exactly where the highest emissions are within our business and supply chain and we'll be able to work in that to reduce it. So we'll be doing some sort of co-presentation with Oatly in the coming months once we've got all those numbers that's carried out. So again, it's, it's sort of a bit weird that you know a, a small dairy like us has taken on the biggest oat milk brand in, in the world talking about sustainability, but it's an opportunity for, for both of us to work together and actually go, you know, well, actually, is there a way to do it more sustainably? How can we do it more sustainably? And, you know, People are out there demanding products of certain kinds. How can we meet that demand in the most environmentally sound way? So, so just going back to your, your sort of question of, you know, are, are people looking for more environmentally sustainable options? Yes, I do believe they are. But again, we're just coming through a cost of living crisis for the past 18 months. We have seen demand in some areas go down. We've seen demand in some areas go up. So yeah, it's, it's always a, a sort of moving base. We've always got to sort of keep, keep an eye on how the market goes and, and where we want to place our product for that. Yeah, that is really interesting that that came about. I'll need to, I'll need to look into that. So... You won Product of the Year at the Scotland Food Drink Awards last year. So how did that feel? And do you think it sort of showcases the continued interest in sustainable and organic farming methods that obviously consumers are into? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was really, really funny. My wife and I were, were on my way up to Edinburgh with a terrible day. My kilt was in the back of the car. I hadn't even got changed yet. So we basically dumped the car at a, a car park jumped into the kilt, walked in, and I actually stayed on the way, and I thought, there's absolutely no point in us being here. We're up against Mackey's, who you know, they're heavily invested in sustainability. They are probably the biggest ice cream brand in Scotland. And the other people that were in against us was Graham's, you know, the, again, big, biggest brand, if, uh, biggest dairy brand, certainly, and if not the biggest brand in Scotland. And we thought, just there's no point in us being here, but just going to have a nice meal and go back home and we'll be faced with these problems again. And then it, it got announced that we won Dairy Product of the Year. And I, I, I couldn't, genuinely couldn't believe it. And then we sat, sat back down again and thought, well, that was amazing, fantastic to be here, I mean, amazing award to, to win. And then a few minutes later, we were told that it won Overall Product of the Year for, for the entirety of the of the awards. We were absolutely amazed by it. We've had a lot of people talking about it since. And it's actually opened up a conversation. So 10 years ago, a lot of people said, oh, you know, milk's milk, it's the, it's the white stuff. The, the marketing from the big brands was always about, it's this white liquid, and then you can do this, that, and the next thing with it. But there was, was no excitement about it, and certainly not about sustainability. So the fact that we've been able to, as a small brand, so I moved to that, win that award and, uh, you know, start talking about true sustainability within dairy farming is quite incredible and, and really, 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 it's great for us, but it's, I think as an industry, it's also good as well. It's making people sit up and realise that, you know, it's not just a white liquid that comes from a supermarket shelf in a plastic bottle. There's a story behind milk. There's like, you can produce it in different ways. It can come from different types of cows. It can be good for the environment. It can do different things for biodiversity. It's, it's quite an interesting conversation to start having now. Yeah. And just to quickly go back to the cow to calf method, do you ever see that being something that 
can happen large scale like you're obviously I think I imagine you're probably still quite small compared to say other you know more well-known brands for example but do you think it's something that can be introduced across the board or do you just think the sort of loss of money potentially is not not great for bigger brands uh, yeah so that, that, that's always going to be a challenge so just give me a background into what we've been doing since 2018 we've been a cow with calf dairy so that's when we started keeping the cows and calves together and we started with 30 cows and we had massive problems it it took us a good three years to work out how to get the system sorted out so we had every problem from for the past hundred years, this farm has been fenced for cows and calves been in a shed until they're a certain size and then they go outside. So if you can imagine, these calves are now running through the gaps in the fences that cows can't get through. So then the cows want to get their calf back, they'll bust through that fence. We started having fences getting bust all over the place. When we had the calves inside in the winter, we would move the calves to a certain area where the cows weren't, and the cows would be bashing the doors and they'd be moving things about to try and get to the calves. And it was, to be honest, after the first year, we were pulling our hair out, thinking we'd done the completely wrong thing. We think we'd actually, we felt as if we had done a worse thing for the cows as opposed to a better thing for the cows. But sort of stuck at it. Elizabeth and I had daily meetings. We kept uh, sort of trying to hone it and progress and do things differently. Uh, speaking to the other 14 or so cow with calf dairies in the UK, including a couple in the Netherlands and one in Germany as well, just to try and get an idea of how to do it better. And what we did was we just basically managed to find out a way to get it to work. We feel that we could have stumbled on the right way about 2021, 20, that kind of time. And we've kept going from there. So we then grew it from 30 cows up to 45. We've now got that working. What we did then was we were only sort of calving in the summertime because we felt that if we, we calved all our cows in the springtime, we didn't we weren't calving any cows in the wintertime. It just made it easier to, to manage the cows when we were outside. So if we had any problems, we weren't bringing them into the sheds in the wintertime and things like that. So this year, 2023-2024, uh, this is the first year we've got them inside and we feel we've, we've sort of cracked that as well and got that system working. And again, we've been chatting to other cow with calved dairies to see if it can work. And what we believe now is we actually believe we've now got a blueprint and a documentation that we can now go to other farms and start saying, you know, we've got this system called Cow with Calf. We would love for you to do this and we would love to take your milk to then sell it so we can start launching it. Because one thing that I found really hard in the early days was being a farmer, trying to market milk, trying to sell milk, trying to deal with invoices and individual customers. And you can absolutely 100% see why farmers would like to be farmers and sell milk in a tanker to a dairy that goes and sells it and gives them a sustainable price. So what we would love to do is be the platform for cow with calf dairies to sell milk into and organic dairies as well to sell milk into, which we can then distribute to places like Locavore, which would then ultimately bring it to your home and into ethical retailers and different sort of uh, ways that we can supply milk across. So that's what we want Muskill to be as this platform for small cow with calf dairies to be able to sell into and create a much bigger story around that. So that's what we are sort of aiming for and our vision for is, is going forward. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and just before we wrap up, can you tell us some of the name of your cows? Because I've only ever been to a dairy farm once. I grew up in Fife and one of my friends from school, her dad dairy farmer and they were all just numbered so we used to go in and see them but it was yeah. like oh there's number 11 there's number five so what are, what are some of your names for oh, your we've got, we've got lots of different names so so uh, i know i shouldn't have favorites but one of the favorites about here is mary so mary is a cow who um she was born on the farm and she was actually one of the first first ones we started to name in this week so so mary is quite funny because she was always a bit of a pet she was a first in her cow with calf system and she'd walk about now she's a mum as well so she's now milking we've got uh, girls like rosa we've got lizzie we've got cherub we've got cheryl we've got lo- lots and lots of different names but what we used to do as my dad's day is he would always call a cow the name of its mother and then another number behind it so that would be a, a pedigree name so if you ever looked up the old Westman school pedigrees you'd always see this line of cow names but I say now Elizabeth's got involved every single one's got a different name well it's been really interesting thank you very much I'll continue to enjoy Moscow milk in my coffee thank you very much thank you <laughs> 
I'm now joined by David and Wilma from the Ethical Dairy. Hi both, how are you? We're well, how are you? Hello. Yeah, good, thank you. Slightly cold in my spare room, but um, it's all good. And I'm saying Happy New Year to everyone still, but I don't know if that's okay. So Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're not halfway through January, January yet, so that's fine, yes. <laughs> For anyone that doesn't know, could you tell us a little bit about your business and how it all came about and you know why now you're focusing on sort of ethical dairy practices? Well, it actually has to start 30 years ago when we diversified the farm together and we launched Crema Galloway, which is an ice cream brand. And we've made ice cream here at the farm for the past 30 years. And then that diversified again into tourism. But we also, as individuals, maybe halfway through that journey, started to look at the kind of social and economic issues the, you know, with regards to climate change and resource depletion, environmental issues, etc., 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 and thought, shouldn't we be doing something else? Because ice cream is so energy intensive, and we are taking in ingredients from all over the world. Just the milk from the farm, it was just a tiny part of the whole cost of what we were doing. So we decided that we had to change. Um, and that was about 2008 we were looking at that. We decided that we had to make another product using milk. And we then started to plan to make cheese. And that took a long time. You know, you just don't have the resources to say, and tomorrow we'll make cheese. Because So we had to find the finance, learn how to make cheese, convert another building on the farm, etc., etc., etc. So we started on a small scale in 2013 and then... Uh, I'd been badgering David for many, many years. He says it was 19, that we should actually keep the cows and calves together after the cows gave birth. And the norm is 24 hours. So round about the time we were planning about changing to make cheese, we realised we were going to have to completely change the physical dairy. Therefore, why not include an area where cows and calves could be together? So that also started, and there's a whole story behind that. And then in 2019, we had dedicated cheesemaking facilities. And that was when we started to think about, right, is it time to sell the ice cream business, to close the ice cream business or whatever your main income, uh, which was ice cream? And just think this wonderful new world of cheese is going to keep us financially viable. So you have to plan that. So actually, we've just sold Crema Galloway um, and we no longer own it. Um, I'm still in the deal for a few months yet where I'm helping with the transition. But really now our focus and our money will be concentrating on the farm and the cheese business. And how do you feel about that? If you've been thinking about it for this long, how does it feel to just be having that as your main focus? Well, it'll be fair to say we had a little drink when it was finally all the <laughs> through because you never really think it's going to happen. You just think, OK, this is what we plan to do, but is there really a buyer out there, etc., etc., etc. And so that always takes a while, but it will feel like when it's right, that's it. We've completely transitioned to the new owner. You don't need to come to work every day. I, I still think that'll be weird. And what's been the consumer reaction to the ethical dairy? Because I know there's sort of more knowledge and understanding from consumers about the sort of dairy industry. And, and have, have you found it quite positive? Yeah, absolutely. We knew there was um, a growing market because we've been doing farm tours for 25, nearly 30 years, up to several times a, a day during the summer. Really, the only strong negative that we ever had from the visitors was that we were separating the calves from their mothers. 
on a dairy farm, you know, it was just unthinkable that you didn't because the cows would drink half the milk, if not more. But we knew that it was a problem because people voiced it and we knew that it wasn't going to get any better. And of course, then once um, animal welfare and vegan activists started putting stuff up on social media in the last five, six years, that has stirred things even more and made people widely aware of common practices in the, uh, the dairy industry, which they weren't happy about. And in the dairy industry, you know, we were, we're a very closed shop, you know, we were very inward looking and we learn from each other, but we don't really listen to our customers. And that's been our biggest fault, I think. So we, we, we could see the perception of dairy by the general public, which was probably one of Janet and John school books, you know, the farmer with his bit of straw and his floppy hat and the two cows and two sheep and two pigs and, and straw. It was so disconnected from the reality. And even even at our level, and we thought we were pretty non-intensive, cow separation was, was clearly an issue. When I was being defensive and saying, you know, you'll put me out of business, there's no way we can do this. It's, the calves are going to drink all the milk. You can't run a farm like that. Back in 2008, 7, 8, um, there's two things happened. One was the, the old dairy that we had here was becoming unfit for purpose going forward. We had to make a big decision about whether we continued dairying, whether we we're going to invest a lot of money to fix it up or to, to new build. The decision was, well, okay, we'll look at new build. If we're going to do new build, we could think about incorporating facilities for cow with calf. And that was really the first steps. And we went across to the Netherlands, the whole team, the farm team, everybody went across various stages and had a look and came back. Everybody came back unanimously. Oh, yeah, that's no problem. We can do that. Because, you know, smaller herds, 30, 40 cow herds over there, organic, were leaving calves on, probably a handful of them. And it seemed to work quite well with them. So we, we thought, no. We, we can do that. But of course, um, the, the story is it's it's a lot more complicated than that. And that's, that does lead me into the question, what are the challenges of it? Because I can't, obviously if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Exactly. <laughs> the challenges were, were every kind of level, basically. It was about, there was so little information out there about how much milk the calves were going to drink, what the reaction of the cows and the calves to being left together and trying to milk them was. We knew that the, 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 there was a public discomfort with cow-calf separation, but we didn't know whether that would be enough to drive the customers to change the buying behaviour. You know, that was critical. If we Because we were thinking, well, at this point in time, we were, we're starting to move away from ice cream, thinking about ice cream as being the future, about cheese. Really, the, one of the major drivers towards cheese was, hey, it was a, it was a farm product. It was, it was 99% plus from the farm rather than all this other stuff we were buying in for the ice cream. It was something that we could put in a bag and send anywhere in the UK for a few quid. Whereas with ice cream, we can't do that. It has to go through a, a frozen food distribution system, which is horribly expensive. And also you, your, your route to market was constantly being interrupted by buyer's decision, by a retailer's decision. And so you're, you're constantly being blocked. If, even if you had a good story, it didn't get through to your customer because all, at the end of the day, all they could do was read the packaging and who does that. But with the cheese, it was totally different. It gave us the opportunity to deal directly with with our customer, end customer, maximise the margin and uh, bypass this uh, 
obstructive, certainly for small-scale producers, a system of distribution. And so it, it would retain the, the, the benefit on the farm to provide us with a employment here, hopefully profitably. That's probably gone way off track no not at all it's, it's really interesting so is your main is your main product for the ethical dairy just now cheese or do, are you also doing milk our main product by far is cheese milk we're doing on a kind of local haphazard scale mainly because we live in an area that doesn't have a huge population there are a few other dairies choosing to pasteurize milk and to distribute it locally but we haven't one of the issues around that is scale as well. In Scotland, it is illegal to sell or even give away raw milk and pasteurised milk, and in England, it isn't. So you do get quite a lot of small-scale dairies doing cow with calf who are selling their milk, but they don't need to pasteurise it, so they don't need to invest in the equipment to do all that. I mean, we, we have invested in a lot of equipment, but we're going to concentrate on cheese equipment. And um, can you tell me a bit about your cows? Because we're allowing the calves to suckle their mothers for five to six months, the, the calf is now a very valuable part of our dairy systems. So um, it is so important for us to, A, look after the calf at every level and to um, get a calf that is, is suitable at the end of the day for the beef market because something like three quarters of the calves will be going into the beef for food and a quarter will be retained for, for breeding purposes. So the type of cow that we're now breeding towards, we started with Ayrshire cows way back oh, 35 years ago. Then we started crossing cross-breeding with Swedish reds, Norwegian reds, uh, which are basically, they were Ayrshires that went to the Nordic countries 100 years ago and they, they've bred them on in, in their own style. So we've been crossbreeding with them. Then we started bringing in Montbelliard, which is a more dual-purpose type of breed. Brings a, a, a body and scale to the to the cow, so that brings beef to the the calf. And then we've we've brought back uh, we've bought, brought in Holstein, which I swear I never do, but we've brought in Holstein. But but the Holstein breed is a very wide spectrum of of breeds. So you can you can go for a very high yielding, um, skinny animal, or you can go for a more general purpose type of cow like, that we go for, um, which is uh, you know good legs and other and a good good healthy animal, uh, robust animal. So so we're then breeding. So we're using these three breeds and we're cross breeding to give us a, a crossbred cow, which. Um, as anybody would know, uh, um, if you get a mongrel um, animal, it is so much more robust, more fertile, more productive than than the purebreds, and uh, that's just a, that's a scientific fact. And we find that so we we find that the cows are very healthy themselves, and that means you've got less reliance on antibiotics and um, concentrated feed stuffs and all this kind of stuff. So we've managed to move away from uh, almost almost completely from antibiotic usage. We've moved away completely from cereal feeding, from soya feeding. We don't feed any soya. We're 100%, what they call 100% pasture fed. So they only feed the animals that get, and it's 95 plus percent of it is grown on the farm. We get a little bit in, in pellet form, is, is a forage. So it's a dried forage we get in a pellet. Um, and they get that as a, a little sweetie at, um, at milking time. But otherwise, uh, we don't feed anything that's not grown on the farm. And, and what we grow on the farm is, uh, because we've been organic for 25 years, it's what we call pastures now. 
It is a rich mixture of grasses, um, clovers, and, and herbs. And the amazing thing about that is there's so much nutrient in the, that uh, mixture of uh, forage is that we no longer have to supplement our cows and sheep with any minerals or vitamins now at all. Whereas before, we used to have deficiencies in copper, cobalt, selenium. So it's incredible how the regenerative type of agriculture has taught us that a lot of the things that we were having to do were unnecessary if we didn't push our cows so hard, if we gave them time and fed them more natural diets. Oh, it's really interesting. So yeah, nature provides. It does, but it takes time. <laughs> the problem is with nature's natural systems is you have to wait. I mean, it can be years and it, it took us 10 years before we got the organic thing to work for us and the soils recovered from all the stuff we'd been putting on, fertilizers and pesticides, uh, the fertility of the soil recovered, the production from our, our silage and grazing fields recovered. Uh, to the point where we, we were getting the same kind of yields now that we were getting 25 years ago with all the chems, but without any of that stuff. And, and the great thing about that is that it means that your profitability is so much better because, and, and also when you've got these price spikes, commodity prices, so fertilizers double the price 18 months ago, had doubled in price in six months. It was really um, squeezing farmers to the point where they could, barely function and then the same thing is with feedstuffs you know feedstuffs going up 50 percent we haven't experienced really any of that um so we have a much more robust business a more resilient business that is profitable where can customers buy your cheese well we've got a very good online shop and we have a an increasing audience of buyers who always speaks at Christmas, so we go through a very busy time late December. So it can be bought at our website, The Ethical Dairy. But at the same time, we're within you know Edinburgh, Glasgow, Stirling, Perth, and in the in the south of England as well. So there's various uh, cheese wholesalers that now stock our range and go primarily to delis. It's not in any supermarkets but it'll be in delis and some restaurants now buy it as well. A good independent deli has got a very good chance. And if not, get in touch with us and we'll make sure we get in touch with the distributor and get it in there. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much. It's been really interesting. And yeah, I'll need to look out and just try some of your cheesy soon. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. I'm joined by Robert Graham of Graham's The Family Dairy. Hi, Robert, how are you? I'm good, fine, Rosalind, how are you? Good, yeah. Could you tell us a bit about the background of the business and your role for anyone that doesn't know? It's a family business and it started at Every Kirsten Boot Development, where I am just now, in, in 1939, when my grandfather, who a farmer's son, came here with my grandmother and, and started milking 12 cows and, and delivering milk in, in the village. And since then, it's grown from there... It's grown to a, a business just under 700 people, three dairy sites in Scotland, still rooted in being a, a farming business in, in Stirling. I, I'm the managing director and I've, I've been here for 33 years. Well, how does that feel? <laughs> fast. <laughs> very, very fast. It's hard to believe it. In 1991, I, I joined I joined the business. How, how do you go about product development? Because I can imagine for a long time, like you said, it's just, it was milk. And then obviously you've grown exponentially. You're available in like the main supermarkets. It's the butter that I buy. But what point did you realise we need to sort of diversify into other things? And how does that process work? 
up until about 2003, so only 20 years ago, all we did was milk. In 2003, we started making butter and we felt there was a, a gap there for a, a Scottish butter because it wasn't, it wasn't really that well served. And in fact, now there's nobody else makes butter in Scotland in any sort of significant way apart from us. It started to evolve from there into, into other products. The big step change in new product development was when we took over the, our site in Cowden Beef where we make cottage cheese and protein yogurts. It didn't make any protein yogurts at the time, but it had some capability for, for doing that. And we felt that protein was a, a big trend. But what we try and do when we have an idea is we try and launch it quite quickly. And if it doesn't work, then we fail it. And we've had some products that haven't worked. And we've luckily had a lot of products that have worked very strongly. But we try and launch it quickly and market test it rather than overly looking at analysis. We tend to operate from gut and feel in terms of what we think will be good for what consumers are looking for. Just in the last few months, you've reported that the protein products that you have, so that the protein yogurts have actually are outselling the milk. So was that was that a bit of a surprise or did you sort of sort of suspect that might happen in terms of the consumer needs? It's a bit of a surprise because milk is still really big for us, but just protein has just had such massive growth. Even just 12 months of growth has been massive. And we tie that in with new product launches as well. That's added to our growth on, on protein. It's come, it's come quickly. For anyone that doesn't know, could you tell us a bit about the protein products and how it kind of works? So... My, uh, I've got a bit of a weird thing with protein. I think it's going to make you put on weight, but I know it's all to do with like, health and things. So, um, yeah, if you sort of explain what the products you have. So, skier's high in protein, but the protein yogurts are just a bit higher. But how we make it is, is we, we take milk in and we culture it, just like a normal yogurt, and effectively we just we just squeeze it and take um, take water off. Take, take whey off, it's technical whey, but it's basically water. We take water off, so it thickens the product up. It's actually been done really naturally, because all we're doing is culturing milk, as you would with a yogurt, and then we squeeze it. And that's what concentrates the protein up. So it would, it's roughly three litres of milk makes one kilo of yogurt. So it's like squeezing it three to one. That's all available pretty much in big supermarkets, and, you know, it's quite easy to get to get your, the products, isn't it? Yeah, we've got, we've got strong uh, ranging, particularly in Scotland, also pretty much available across uh, retailers and England, maybe not the same width of range. And also we've got very big ranging in Ireland and more recently into uh, Dubai. That's not nearby. <laughs> no, it's not nearby, but it goes on a plane once a week. So we've, we've got 12 lines before Christmas and another 12 launched last week into Dubai. So all pretty much all across protein. That's really interesting. Is it just the expat market sort of understanding, recognising the brand, that kind of thing? It's a bit of that, but it's a market where everything in Dubai has to fly there pretty much. So we're not at any distribution cost disadvantage against any other products. So uh, and these Emirates planes or whatever, wherever are coming from the world, they've all, all, all got food underneath them, underneath the passengers. There's food in all of them. It's exciting. It's, it's uh, growing. But still the main part of our business is UK and Ireland. I think probably half our business is now outside of, outside of Scotland, principally England, followed by 
uh, Ireland, which has been a really strong market for us in this last 12 months. Um, and what do you sort of see for the future? I mean, what's, what does the rest of 2024 have in store and sort of going forward? What, how do you see the dairy industry continuing to evolve with, you know, everything that's going on? We think of our business in two types of groups. We have our traditional, authentic provenance uh, type products, milk, butter, gold top, jersey milk. And that has a really important role to play in people's diet. We see people turning back to butter now, fats are less demonized, fats seen as positive now. And then we have our protein functional side of products, which have been enjoying strong growth. So we think it's positives for both around where consumers are around authenticity, provenance, taste. Uh, Taste is huge, protein huge. And uh, we'll we'll continue to launch more products on our functional side, principally principally around protein. We're really excited. So what do you think of the alternative to milk brands? That's quite an interesting area because it's had a lot of press, but actually sales are falling across everything, whether that's uh, meat replacements or or dairy replacements. They're falling in the UK, but the falls in the US are, are bigger. So if you look at milk alternatives in the US, we fell 12% last year and 17% the year before. So that's like a death loop, really. This is what I see as being positive for dairy. It's a dairy gives something that's natural, tastes good. There's just no question about nutritional benefit and it's not expensive. So that's one of the things why dairy, which is almost the complete opposite of everything that's alternative, nutritionally questionable, expensive, poor taste. So dairy has a really strong position across whether it's traditional products, authentic products, or on protein to deliver on what people are looking at from a price, taste, nutritional point of point of view. And I suppose there's the sustainability question as well. Like if you if you're buying milk from a farm in Scotland or even, you know, relatively local, like, you know, your milk for me is not that far away, you're not buying, you know, the alternative milk might have been flown from somewhere, you know, that, the, the almond stuff, like where's that been made? I mean, people are probably thinking a bit like that. If you're going to go down that route, then, you know, your your local farm is closer than wherever your almond milk's been made. Is that, do you think that comes into it as well? I think that, that's part of it. If there's some massive percentage of almonds are produced in California, you, you read about that and people talking about avocados flown from Peru or something. But a bit, big bit, I think, is... You look at these um, alternatives, they have massively long ingredient lists going forward. One just needs to look at the share price of the two big alternative companies to see what a car crash they are. And dairy has so much going for it. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been really interesting to chat and I hope you have a good rest of 2024. Good. Thanks, Rosalind. Thanks to my guests for being on this episode of Scran and thanks to you too for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.